If you'll open up your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 1, if you're a guest with us today, thank you for being here. We're, as a congregation, we're studying the Gospel of Mark, and our prayer and our hope and our desire is, as we work through the Gospel of Mark, it will fuel in us a greater passion and love and devotion for Jesus Christ. As you're turning there, let me make a confession. I'm a Monday morning prognosticator. And you may be too. Sometimes we're called Monday morning quarterbacks. Often my Monday morning quarterbacking is done on Sunday mornings after my UofL football team plays on Saturday or uh, on any day after the UofL basketball team plays. Now sitting in the the cool, air-conditioned confine of my home, sitting in my easy chair as I watch Louisville play basketball or football, I know I could do a better job than those guys do on some days. And I think you probably think the same thing about the coaches of the teams that you follow. From a very isolated, secure setting, we know exactly what people ought to do. We know exactly the plays that ought to be called. We know exactly how things should should be carried out on the court or on the football field. We're Monday morning quarterbacks. You know, there's such a thing as Monday morning quarterbacks in the realm of theology, too. We call them ivory tower theologians. Ivory tower theologians are people who make theological pronouncements without any real-world ministry experience. They write books, they speak in large conferences, and yet they live in isolation from the real world. They've never actually got their hands dirty with real-world church experience, and yet seemingly they know everything that needs to be done by the church. But let's not put too much blame on ivory tower theologians because what we find is the same is true in the pew. There are a lot of prognosticators in many churches. There are a lot of ivory tower Christians Ivory Tower Christians are Christians that keep people that aren't like them at an arm's distance. They want to protect their family, they want to protect themselves, and so they keep those that don't cross all the T's they cross, dot all the I's they dot, listen to the same radio stations they listen to, have the same standards on movies that they have, they keep them at a distance. And before they engage people in real-world living, they they give them the white glove test. They put on the white glove, and and they'll they'll rub that glove across the life of their neighbor, co-worker, or associate. And they'll look to see, does that life pass the white glove test? Because I've got a wife and children and a family and a reputation. I've 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 got to protect. And so we isolate ourselves from our neighbors. We don't have a vision for our place of employment. Because those we work with and those we live near, they don't pass the white glove test. Consequently, the ministry that we do isn't ministry in a real world. It's ministry in an isolated world. It's ministry in an artificial world. It's, in a, it's ministry in a world that doesn't really exist. But that's not what we find in the life and ministry of Jesus. 
As we study through Mark's gospel, we'll see that God didn't isolate himself from us, even though we didn't pass the white glove test with God. God became incarnate in the person of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and he engaged in real-world ministry, and he lived with people living in that real world. The people that isolated themselves from him were the religious elite, the religious hierarchy, those who refused to engage in the lives of real people. They're the ancient form, the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the prognosticators of our day that live in ivory tower theologies. Well, this morning we're going to look at a passage that really is connected to what we looked at last week. In fact, what Mark is doing in the first chapter of this book is he's trying to show us how real-world ministry caused Jesus' ministry to explode in popularity. In just a few short paragraphs, Mark describes a man who went from almost absolute anonymity to being the superstar of Galilee. Look with me back in verse 28. In fact, you might even underline this phrase. We looked at this last week. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. It comes as the culmination of Jesus' first sermon and first exorcism in Galilee, in Capernaum. And as the story continues to unfold, Jesus goes to the home, and we'll read about it in just a moment, of Simon and Andrew, and he heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law, and, and that night, look what happens in verse, in verse 32. When evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. Word spread about what happened in that synagogue earlier that day, and after the sun had set and the Sabbath was over, man, they were flocking to the door of Andrew, or yes, Andrew and Simon Peter's home. Uh, look with me in verse 37. The next morning, Jesus is up early. He goes to an isolated place and he prays, and it says in verse 37, later in that morning, they found him and said to him, Everyone, everyone is looking for you. And then Jesus does what is incomprehensible. Rather than setting up shop right there in Capernaum when his popularity is beginning to skyrocket, he makes a preaching tour of Galilee. And after that preaching tour of Galilee, look at the end of verse 45. It says, Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. He returned to Capernaum, and look in chapter 2, verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum, several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Real-world ministry, that's what Jesus was engaged in, and God honored it, and the people flocked to him. 
I want you to notice several things this morning about the passage that we're going to study. The first one is this, real world ministry begins at home. Real world ministry begins at home. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, well, we studied last week, I just mentioned it, in the Capernaum synagogue, he, he preaches with authority and he cast out a demon, and man, what a day that was. And they leave and they, they came into the home of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with fever and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand and the fever left her and she waited on them. You know, it's kind of odd for us to find two brothers who very likely had families living under the same roof. But that that wasn't odd in the ancient world. In in fact, it it wasn't very uncommon in the beginning of the 20th uh, 20th century. And even in our own day, we find families that buy large plots of land and, and they build, family members build on that large plot of land so that they live very close, in very close proximity to one another. But in the ancient world... You, you would often build a home. There would have been one room for Simon Peter and his family, another room for Andrew and his family, and then a courtyard where they would eat and, and gather for meals. And so Jesus goes to the home of, of Peter and Andrew, and, and almost immediately they mention to him offhandedly that Simon Peter's mother-in-law is ill. Now, in the, in the Capernaum synagogue, Jesus cast the demon out of the man with a spoken word. But here he doesn't even speak a word. All he does is think a thought. Be healed. And he takes her by the hand and he lifts her up and as he's thinking the thought be healed instantaneously she's healed. Not in front of large crowds and and not in front of of, uh, of newspapers and cameras. There he is in a private home, right in the place where he's going to be spending some time when he's in Capernaum, probably living with Andrew and Peter in isolation and anonymity, so to speak. He heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law, and, and immediately she gets up and begins to, to wait on them and to serve them. And This is probably Mark's way of expressing This is how you respond to the goodness of God. This is how you respond to the grace of God. This is the way when God blesses you, you respond by serving him. It's going to be a key key theme in Mark's gospel, this idea of service. In fact, Jesus himself will say in Mark 10, 45, I did not come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And and Simon Peter's mother-in-law does exactly what every disciple should do that knows the grace of God experientially, they serve Christ. I want you to notice, secondly, in this passage, that real-world ministry, while it begins in the home, it doesn't stay there. It doesn't isolate itself from those in need and those who are suffering and those who are not a part of our immediate family real-world ministry goes to the streets. And in verses 32 through 34, Jesus begins to heal those who come to him. 
Look in verse 32. When evening came after the sun had set, you know, Mark has a propensity for redundancy. And if I were grading a paper at the seminary, I, I would have found this to be redundant. But since he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'll let it go this time. Now, what Mark is doing is he's driving home a point. That's why he repeats himself here. When evening came after the sun had set, he's trying to accentuate the thought these people were so caught up in the rules and regulations of the Pharisees that governed the Sabbath day, they did nothing that might cause them to transgress an extra-biblical tradition that had been established by the rabbis about what was appropriate and inappropriate activity on the Sabbath. And you couldn't heal a person on the Sabbath day. You couldn't carry a sick person to a healer on the Sabbath day. They were just caught up in this legalism, and it paralyzed their souls... But when evening set and the clock struck six and the Sabbath was over, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. This is the kingdom of God advancing. This is the kingdom of God assaulting the kingdom of darkness. We've already seen earlier in the chapter Jesus encounter Satan in the wilderness and bring on him a stinging defeat. And then in his very first sermon, in the very first sermon... A demon cries out and demon casts the demon out of the man. And now they're, they're gathering at the door and, and there are people that have, have demons and, and Jesus is not permitting them to speak because they knew who he was. He's casting out the demons. That is, for the third time in this short opening of the gospel, we've seen how the kingdom of God is bringing down the kingdom of darkness. And we see Jesus healing the sick. You know, we need to talk about for a moment, does God heal miraculously today? Because we're going to encounter this over and over again in Mark's gospel. Does God heal miraculously today? Well, of course he does. That's why we pray for people. That's why we, we gather around people and we ask God to touch them and bring them physical healing, whether it's directly and apart from medical technology or whether it is a part of medical technology. We pray God's healing on people. And we've seen some wonderful and, and literally miraculous things happen. But you know, there's a lot of people that teach that God wants to heal everybody. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians he prayed three times that his thorn in the flesh would be removed and, and God's answer to him was, my grace is sufficient for you. So those who say, if you've got enough faith, God will heal you, are saying Paul didn't have enough faith for God to heal him. Because it's very possible that, that Paul's thorn in the flesh had something to do with an eye disease. And if God healed every person every time, 
When would a person die? Sometimes God heals and sometimes God has a different plan. If you've been a member for any length of time at all, you know I've got a degenerative retinal disease. And it's not because we haven't prayed that God would heal me. I'm able to drive during the day very safely, and when I'm not, I won't drive during the day. There's coming a day when I will have to give up driving very likely altogether. We recently, recently, well, just this last week, my wife's car was about 13 years old. My car's 13 years old. We got her a new used van. So we're in our mid-50s driving a van still. But we got plenty of room for our grandkids, and that's what, that's what mattered to us. That's what mattered to her. I wanted a sports car. But that's what mattered to us, to us. So she, says, uh, she said to me the night that we got her, got her car, she said, Honey, we need to start saving money because your car's 13, almost 13 years old. It's got 150,000 miles. You know, let, let's save up money and, and, and we'll get you a new used car too. And, and I said, You know, honey, we don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to drive. And her eyes filled with tears and she said, I know, but you can drive today. I, I had, a, had to work through the process of it. There was a time at the seminary when I would, I didn't really want to go out of my office except to teach my classes for a period of months because it had gotten to the point I couldn't recognize people in the hallways. And it, and it just gets very embarrassing, as you can imagine. Or if I had a, an appointment at the cafeteria, you can, Southern Seminary is a big campus. You can walk a long way and not run into people if that's your goal. And for a short period of time, that was my goal. Not because I, didn't, I don't enjoy people. You know that not to be, that's not true. It just gets, you can only apologize so many times to people that you don't recognize them. So I'm in my office one day and God, as he often does, took me by the collar and jerked me up and said, Start walking down the hallways. I'm tired of you walking around the outside of the buildings. I said, Lord, it's a little bit embarrassing. He said, it's good for you to be embarrassed. It keeps you humble. Do you know what? God heals miraculously, but he doesn't always heal miraculously. And the God that heals miraculously is a good and gracious and kind God. And the God, when he chooses not to heal miraculously, is good and gracious and kind. I want you to notice a third thought. There's ministry in the home, there's ministry in the streets, but real world ministry also takes place to outcast. In... In verses 35 through 45, there are two scenes. It's the following day. Early in the morning, Jesus finds an isolated place, a lonely place, and he goes there to pray. It begins in verse 35 and goes through verse 39. Look look at it with me. In the morning, 
While it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Notice that redundancy again at the very first part of the verse. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away. I mean, that's extending that out just a little bit. But the point is, Mark wants us to know Jesus lived by the power of prayer. That Jesus felt it imperative to be alone with his heavenly father, even if the previous day had been filled with, with unbelievably heavy ministry. So it says in verse 38, Simon and his companion searched for him. They found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. This is your moment. The wave is here. Let's catch the wave. Let's ride the wave. We can set up shop in the synagogue here. We can write books about church growth here. We can begin to do conferences from here. The people are coming. They're being drawn here. Everybody's looking for you. And what Jesus says is completely counterintuitive. It goes against every bit of advice you'll ever read in any book on leadership strategy. He says, let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. But that is what I came for. You see, the necessity and the importance of prayer... Being in solitude with God allows God to direct us in the way that he wants us to go. Because when God's hand is on you, you will be engaged in real world ministry. See, we think education, teaching, and technique are all we need. But I want to say that education teaching and technique are not enough for God honoring kingdom service. One needs the hand and the anointing of God on on their life and ministry for God to be glorified in kingdom service. And that involves seeking the face of God in prayer and allowing God to be your guide and director in life. Man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. He says, I've not been called to set up shop in Capernaum permanently. I came so that I may preach in other places. And so then in verse 39, and he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. The kingdom of God was making advancement as Jesus was preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons. He was engaged in real world ministry. Everything would have said, set up shop in Capernaum. But what I'm telling you today is, education, teaching, and technique are not enough for God honoring kingdom service. We need the hand of God on us individually and congregationally, and that is found only when we seek the face of God in prayer and we allow Him to have preeminence in the direction that we go. Now, look with me back in chapter 2, verse 1, when he had come back to Capernaum. So he leaves Capernaum, 
in verse 39, he comes back to Capernaum in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, Galilee is about mm, 40 miles wide, 70 miles long, something of that nature. And so he's going around making this tour of Galilee, preaching in the villages, and, and Mark says, describes only one event. This is a good way to read the Bible. Why out of all of the sermons that he preached, out of all of the people that he healed, out of all the demons that he cast out, why is there only one event that's described? He leaves Capernaum in verse 39. He returns to Capernaum in chapter 2, verse 1. And the only event he describes is Jesus healing a man with leprosy. Leprosy in the ancient world wasn't exactly what we call leprosy today in, in, in the sense of what we know as Hansen's disease. In the ancient world, leprosy could be any kind of infectious skin disease. But Luke describes this same scenario and he says the man was covered in it. This man had a severe form of leprosy. It begins is a little white discoloration on the skin. And then it begins to grow. Sores begin to ooze. Flesh begins to be eaten away. And below the surface, what happens is even worse because over time a person loses all abil ability to feel. pain or pleasure. He couldn't feel the, the warm handshake of a friend or the breaking of a toe. But long before that would happen, a person with an infectious skin disease would have to go to the priest and, and the priest would make the determination if the person had leprosy or not. And, and if, he was, if he was identified as having leprosy, he could no longer live with his family. He could no longer live in the community. He could no longer go to worship. He had to live outside the village. He had to live with people like himself, covered with open sores, deteriorating physical condition. Jesus met a man here who probably had not been hugged in a very long time. He would have likely been married. One of, the great, one of the great pleasures of my life is to come home at the end of the day and for my wife to hug me. For my grandchildren to wrap their arms around me. Paul and I will often... Uh, He's a student at seminary, as you know. We'll often have coffee at the school together. And, and almost always, before we leave, he'll just wrap his arms around me. Give me a big hug. Kind of like this. As he bends over toward me. This man hadn't been touched in a long, long time. He hadn't been in worship in a long time. The isolation. The loneliness. The, the way that they had to dress was they had to wear tattered clothing. Their hair was to be disheveled. 
And then they had to cry out if people got very close, unclean, unclean. What a terrible way to live. And you were forbidden to come in contact with people. And people were forbidden to come in contact with you. And yet this man, he sees Jesus, he rushes to him. And he beseeches him, he falls on his knees and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He knows Jesus can heal him because Jesus' reputation has, well, it's been like a a wildfire scorching through the Midwest. But he says, if you are willing, he means if you're willing for somebody like me, a leper, an outcast, you can make me clean. And Jesus doesn't put on a white glove. He doesn't give him the white glove test. I'm going I'm to just see, let me run my finger across your forehead. Look at the ooze, the filth. I, I, I just can't, and I just can't. I've got to protect myself from you. No, that's not what Jesus, he's moved with compassion. His heart goes out to him. He stretches out his hand. He says, I'm willing. Be cleansed. Immediately, immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. You see, Jesus is teaching us about the priority of being salt and light. Getting our hands dirty in kingdom proclamation. The healing of this leper is intended to instruct us, you can't follow Jesus and live a safe life. You can't follow Jesus and live in isolation from the outcast. You can't follow Jesus and be an ivory tower Christian. If you're going to be a believer, you've got to be willing to engage the outcast, the broken. The leprous. See, what leprosy is to a person physically, sin is to a person spiritually. Leprosy kills a person from the outside in. And that's what sin does. Just like a person with leprosy doesn't feel pain or pleasure, a person who, is, who falls into a lifestyle of sin loses all semblance of spirituality and feeling toward God. But you know what? That's the very goodness of God because the sign of that is you need God. The sign that you don't feel anything toward God is a blessing from God because it's God's way of saying to you, you need God. And in just a moment, we're going to have a time of commitment and, and we're going to invite you to come forward. If you need God, we're not going to embarrass you by languishing you up here in front. We're not going to, we're not going to force you or manipulate you or coerce you or back you into a corner. We'll talk with you privately and confidentially about your soul and what the Bible says about the possibility of, of transformation. If you're looking for a church home, we'd invite you to come forward so that we could introduce you to someone that can walk you through the membership process.
But most of us here today are members. We're seeking to follow the Lord Jesus. And what we have to decide is, are we an ivory tower Christian? Are we a prognosticator that sits on the sidelines and condemns the homosexual but has no interest in sharing the gospel with a homosexual? That denounces the drug addict but has no concern about their soul? Maybe that's where you are today. You've got a neighbor that you've seen passed out drunk in the front yard, but you've never, you've never engaged them in just camaraderie and friendship over the fence because they don't pass the white glove test. You know, you really ought to ask the Lord to forgive you for that and say, Lord, I'm going to join you as we march through Mark's gospel. I'm going to begin in the home. I'm going to take it to the streets, and I'm going to go to the outcast because I'm going to follow you wherever you lead. I'm going to ask if you'll stand. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. Our worship pastor is going to lead us in song and a couple of announcements and we'll be done. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you've given us this account of the life of our Savior and thank you that he became one of us to teach us who we're to be. In these final moments, we pray in Jesus' name you would have your way in our midst for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name. Amen.